welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lack, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 38th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, February 2. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guest for this latest episode is David Boys, who was, as you'll recall, my guest for my last episode. He really needs no introduction, so I'll simply state that he's one of the nation's top trial lawyers, as well as the founder of Boys Schiller Flexner, or BSF, where he currently serves as chair. In the previous episode, David and I discussed some events in the news, especially Trump v. Anderson, the legal effort to disqualify Donald Trump that the Supreme Court will hear tomorrow, assuming you're listening to this on Wednesday, February 7. It was especially interesting to hear David's perhaps surprising thoughts on the case, based on his having represented Al Gore in Bush v. Gore. In this episode, we focus on David's career in the law, both his successes and his failures. Or are they failures? I asked him tough questions about topics like his representations of Harvey Weinstein and Elizabeth Holmes, and he expressed few, if any, regrets, at least as to his conduct in these matters. And there's one point in the interview where things get a little heated between us. If you usually read the transcript of these interviews, you might want to actually listen to this one. Without further ado, here's part two of my conversations with David Boyce. David, thank you so much for joining me once again. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. A little bit of introduction here. David Boys by the numbers. You're turning 83 next month. You've been practicing for 58 years, which means you've probably billed 100 to 150,000 hours over your life, I'm guessing. You've had your own firm, Boys Schiller Flexner, for 27 years. You've recovered billions for clients. Uh, actually, do you know how many billions you've recovered over your whole career? It's certainly been more than 20 billion. I'd have to count. There have been 10 times when we have recovered more than a billion dollars. And almost all of those have been multiple billions of dollars. So I think it would be certainly much more than 20 billion. So given all that and given Microsoft and Hollingsworth v. Perry, what are you most proud of professionally? And maybe it's something in the headlines or maybe it's something we've never heard of. To some extent, major trials are a little bit like your children. It's hard to distinguish. They're different. If you ask the question, which is the case that I'm most satisfied about, I think it would be the marriage equality case, because that was a case where we made more of a difference in more people's lives over a longer period of time and did so under circumstances which at the time we started, as you remember, there was a very strong opposition to our even taking the case, both from the left and from the right. The right was opposed to what we were trying to do, and the left said, it's too early. You've got to wait for the Supreme Court to become more liberal. Obviously, if we'd waited for the Supreme Court to become more liberal, we'd still be waiting. <laughs> so from a standpoint of what we accomplished, 
the difficulty of that, I think it was the most satisfying case. That makes sense. And on the flip side, over your almost 60 years as a litigator, what would you say was your most difficult or challenging case? Microsoft, Bush v. Gore, or perhaps some case we haven't heard of? Let me just give you some examples. One of the most difficult cases that I tried, and it was a case that was, at the time, it was controversial. It is the kind of case that I think a lot of people don't like lawyers taking on, and there are a lot of people that only want lawyers to take on cases, either who's the causes of which or the clients of which they agree with. And this was a case where I was representing Westinghouse against a claim from the Aquino regime, the first Aquino regime, this is Aquino, in the Philippines. And you'll recall that Marcos, who had started out as a reformer, but had ended up as a dictator in the Philippines, had been essentially overthrown and exiled from the country. And Mrs. Aquino had taken over. And she was a wildly popular president, both for her personal story, her husband had been assassinated by agents of the Marcos regime. She had picked up his mantle and had brought reform to that country. And she was viewed as really a very powerful force for good. And she was suing Westinghouse to invalidate a nuclear power plant contract that had resulted in Westinghouse building a nuclear power plant in the Bataan Peninsula, which had never operated because it had never received the authorization to do that. And it cost the Republic approximately two and a half billion dollars. And she was suing to get the money back on the grounds that the contract had been procured by fraud. And at that point, it was widely believed with some support that President Marcos or people associated with him profited from large public works projects. And both the people that were anti-nuclear and the people who were anti-Marcos and the people who were pro-Aquino, which represented a very, very large percentage of the American public, thought that this was a very positive and desirable lawsuit. And I was brought in to defend Westinghouse. It was not the first time or the last time that I had a client that was not widely popular. And there were, as there often are in cases like this, some undesirable documents that referred to the agent that Westinghouse had brought in as a front man for Marcos, as Marcos a bag man. And a number of statements that the Aquino regime had gotten from people still in the Philippines that were very accusatory of Westinghouse. Now, of course, there was a fair amount of pressure on those people to say what their government wanted them to say. And we were able on cross-examination to undercut a lot of those accusations. But it started out as a case with a lot of potential negatives to it. And we actually tried the case twice. First, in international arbitration, because the contract between Westinghouse and the Philippines was actually between Westinghouse and 
its power authority agency. And that had an arbitration clause. And we tried it in an international arbitration tribunal in Switzerland and won it. We then faced a claim by the Republic itself, with which we did not have a contract and hence did not have an arbitration clause, that they could nevertheless recover. And a federal court in Newark, New Jersey, where this case was brought, agreed with them. And so we then tried it a second time in front of a jury in Newark, New Jersey. It was a couple of months trial, complete with all sorts of interesting characters who came from the Philippines to testify, as well as, of course, the Westinghouse people involved. We ultimately, after a very long period of deliberation, won the trial, but it was a challenging trial. It was also a trial that I had something happen in that trial I'd never had happened before or since. The jury had been out for, I think it was two weeks at a day, and they sent a note in saying they'd reached a verdict. And so we all go into court. The bailiff is sent into the jury room and doesn't come out. A couple minutes pass, five minutes pass, 10 minutes pass, which is an eternity when you're sitting there waiting for a decision like this. Finally, the bailiff comes out, goes up to the judge. I talk back and forth. And then the judge looks up, shakes his head, and says to us, they didn't understand it had to be unanimous. <laughs> and what had happened was that there were people on the jury. There was nobody on the jury had served on a federal jury before, but there were people on a jury who had served on a New Jersey state jury before where it does not have to be unanimous in a civil case. And so what they'd done is they deliberated for about 11 days of deliberation, they had then finally reached conclusion that they weren't ever going to move. And so they voted and people who agreed with one side signed one ballot and the people signed the other jury form. They'd been given two jury forms, one to keep score on and one to fill out. They thought they were supposed to choose sides essentially. And judge then of course sent them back and the jury, which up until then, had been a very friendly, happy, collegial jury. When they filed in to go, they were talking, joking. Now, when some of the jurors, if they were going to reach a conclusion, were going to have to give up firmly held beliefs, they would come in unhappy, sullen, angry. You could hear them yelling at each other through the doors occasionally. But they ultimately did reach a decision. But it was both an interesting case because of that curiosity of sort of coming back with two juries, one majority and the other unanimous. And it was a very interesting case because of the challenges posed by taking on a claim that sort of most people instinctively agreed with. So there was a lot of stuff there. And that was one of the most difficult or challenging cases. What I said is, is that they're different. I mean, for example, Bush v. Gore mm -hmm. was an extraordinarily difficult case because I was confronted with a majority on the Supreme Court that had a, I think, a fixed view as to how they wanted the case to come out. We won that case in the Florida Supreme Court, but when we got to the United States Supreme Court, we were confronted with a court that I think 
people, both conservatives and liberals, who are scholars at court, have said was an outlier and a decision mm-hmm. that really could not be justified based on the jurisprudence of the time. The marriage equality litigation was difficult for the reasons that we've talked about. Sure. Mm-hmm. The Microsoft case, where I represent the Justice Department against Microsoft, was also an extremely difficult case, in part because of the complexity of economic and uh, technological issues, and in part because of how admired Microsoft was at the time. There are a lot of very difficult cases, but they're difficult for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Litigators and trial lawyers have different talents or skills. Some excel at brief writing. Some are great at closing statements. What would you say is your superpower as a litigator or trial lawyer, a skill you're especially good at or a way in which you add a lot of value? It is difficult to unpack success because it does have a lot of aspects to it. I think that I have particular added value when it comes to Mm cross-examination. And I think I have particular added value when it comes to framing a claim or defense. It's easy to be accurate and sustainable in a trial if you are complicated, because the cases that I try are almost always multifaceted and complicated. If they're not hard, complicated, I'm generally not the person that they retain in part because it's expensive to retain me if it's not a pro bono case. And it's also easy to be simple if you elide some of the complexities of a case. What is hard is to find a presentation that is simple enough for a jury or sometimes a court to really understand and accept. But at the same time, it's accurate sufficiently so that it cannot be attacked. So many lawyers present a case that is simply too complicated to really move a jury, to get a jury to unanimously agree that you're right. And there are a lot of lawyers who can move a jury who can't craft the presentation in a way that makes it free from attack. If you start off with a presentation that sounds really great, but over a sustained trial, it crumbles. You've not only lost your advantage, you've lost your credibility. Mm-hmm. And credibility in a trial is the most important thing that you can maintain. So if I had to pick two, I would pick those two. So speaking of challenges or difficulties, do you rue the day you met Elizabeth Holmes? No. You take on cases. The case I did for her, patent case, was a very interesting, challenging case. We prevailed in it. Now, maybe certainly my life would have been simpler if I'd stopped representing her then. But you can't second guess that kind of stuff. What about the issue of sitting on the board of Theranos while doing legal work for the company for which you were criticized? Is that something you maybe would not have done if you could do it over again with the benefit of hindsight? I think that it's not a question with the benefit of hindsight in the sense that 
I think that there was an issue there at the time. Many, many, many lawyers, particularly in Silicon Valley, sit on boards where they represent. I didn't think then, don't think now, that that was an issue that I would do differently, except for the fact that when things turn out badly, you always wish things had been done differently. If you have perfect foresight as to which cases you're going to win, which cases you're going to lose, or who's going to be a popular client five years from now, you'd probably be doing pretty well in the stock market. (laughs) No, fair enough, fair enough. And look, my listeners and readers know that I'm not the type of person who judges lawyers for their clients, I believe, deeply in the right to counsel. But lawyers can be called to account for how they represent their clients, even if not the who of their clients. So do you regret how aggressive you were in supposedly or allegedly intimidating whistleblowers at the company from coming forward with the truth about Theranos? That's one of the problems of journalism, okay? You say something like that, and you have no idea of what the actual facts are, okay? Okay. What's happening is you're picking up a paragraph that now gets repeated in news stories because it's easy to repeat that by journalists who don't know anything about the actual facts of what happened in that case, okay? You have a reporter who did a very good job on some stuff, way overwrote some other stuff, and because he did a good job on some of the stuff he was reporting on, it's accepted as true. Nobody goes back and looks at it, and nobody wants to go through it all a second, third, or fourth time. There weren't any whistleblowers that were intimidated in any kind of improper way. And this is something that is knowable. Okay, one of the things that I think journalists should be criticized about is that when the facts are knowable and they get it wrong, that's pretty undesirable. I had two meetings with the Wall Street Journal. Both of those meetings were taped. The tape is available for somebody to listen to. And if you listen to the second tape, the tape before the publication was run, you will hear me say, look, I understand you're going to write a bad article. We've got no criticism of that. You know, we'll deal with that on an issue basis. Let the market of ideas decide. The thing we want to avoid is we want to avoid you revealing trade secret information. And we are very hard in that to criticize us. If you think we overstated, say it, but don't publish our company's information about their trade secrets. Now, somebody can say, well, hiding trade secrets means you're maybe you're hiding what the technology was. But in terms of trying to protect the company, I think that was entirely legitimate. And if you're a lawyer, you're not prepared to be aggressive for your clients. You ought to get out of this business. Mm-hmm. The idea that says, well, it's okay for a lawyer to represent clients I don't agree with, but you can't be aggressive. You can only be aggressive in representing good clients. Mm-hmm. That's not a good approach if you mm-hmm. want to maintain our adversarial system. For the record, I will note that in my question, I said allegedly intimidate. Yes, so well, I, understand. I, I was not endorsing or vouching for the truth of what Carrie Rue said. People can read his book. People can listen to the tapes you allude to. But just to be clear. Well, right. And, and I should say my quarrel is less with Carrie because people can get things right and get things wrong. His reporting was more objective at the beginning when he was simply a reporter. It was a lot less objective when he was writing a, a book and then writing the screenplay where he wanted to make things more dramatic. 
But Mike Worrell is with journalists that pick things up and, and simply repeat two or three lines without understanding the facts and context. So in terms of folks who were involved and, and you say were not pressured or intimidated or what have you, what would you say about Tyler Schultz? Well, first of all, my only contact with Tyler Schultz is that I wrote him, a, wrote him and one other person a letter reminding them of their obligations to maintain confidentiality with respect to the company's trade secrets. Something that I think was team and every company is entitled to. And if you're representing a client and the client says, this person is talking about our trade secrets, that is something that is entirely appropriate to try to write a letter to. There was another incident where one of my partners was invited to the home of Secretary Schultz. He did not seek to go there. He certainly was not going to go there and do anything with Secretary Schultz, who was a lead director on the company's board, the company we were representing. He was certainly not going to do anything there that Secretary Schultz did not approve of. He was invited there to talk to Secretary Schultz's nephew, the person that you identified, by Secretary Schultz, because Secretary Schultz was concerned about what his nephew was doing. The thing that you lose track of is that this was a situation in which you had a board that consisted not only of Secretary Schultz, Henry Kissinger, eminent political and medical professionals, Senator First, who was a distinguished doctor in his own right, the former head of the CDC, Senator Sam Nunn. You had a board that was extremely credible. And when they came to me to represent the company, this was a company that was, at the time, one of the most widely admired companies and listed home by the most admired women entrepreneurs in the country. And I think that when you look at it in hindsight through a lens of what she has been convicted of, without understanding the nature of the representation at the time, you can get things a little skewed. But just to be clear, subjectively, in terms of your own knowledge, when you were defending Theranos' supposed trade secrets, you actually believed that there was this genuine technology, right? Everybody did. That's what I'm saying. I mean, everybody believed, everybody was in the company. Except for the later people who talked to Karuru, what have you, but... Yeah, but in terms of the board, in terms of the senior medical people, not just Elizabeth Holmes, but a whole series of PhDs. And I think the issue with respect to the technology was not that it never worked in the lab. The issue with the technology was whether it could be scalable, whether it could work in the field, whether it was sufficiently tested, and whether it was put out there, it was done so appropriately. If the technology never worked at all, you would have had to have a massive conspiracy, dozens of scientists, PhDs, lab workers to have made the presentations that they did to the board and to me and to others. But wasn't there some outright fraud here? I mean, at her criminal trial, and wasn't she using lab results from tests that weren't even conducted by her? Because I think that if this technology worked, wouldn't it be just revolutionary? I mean, that was why everyone was so excited. Everybody was very excited because it was so revolutionary. And the issue 
I mean, what she was convicted at a trial were securities violations, where what she did was to tell investors that it could be used for, I think the number was 250 different. Oh, yes. Now, people forget that one of her tests was approved by the FDA. It was not that there was nothing there. The question is, what was there? And was what was there properly disclosed to investors? And I think that at the time, I think the board thought, I thought, I think the other people representing the company and Theranos thought that technology was real. Not sure whether your area of law would work if you founded a boutique or solo practice? NextFirm recently helped Max Rodriguez, an attorney specializing in whistleblower, appellate, and plaintiff-side litigation matters, to launch his own practice as the law office of Max Rodriguez. NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help lawyers in different areas of practice to take that next big step in launching a boutique. So, look, I know you're not a doctor or scientist or what have you, but would you say you could have done more diligence in terms of maybe retaining experts to just really kick the tires on this before you joined the board and took fees and there are no stock? Like, in hindsight, would you have put in more diligence? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that the fact that he took half our fees and there are no stock. Oh, no, I didn't say it, half or I didn't say a percentage, but you took well, some. We, well, we did. Well, that's public. We did take our fees, some of our fees. It was half. Some, yeah. Stock is a good illustration of the fact that we believed that the technology was real. But before you take on a client, it's hard to hire a whole outside group of experts to come in and sort of verify the company's technology. For one thing, we did a lot of due diligence. We visited the labs. We talked to the board in detail, including the people on the board who were medical professionals. We talked to the lab workers. We took tours of the lab. We saw the work that was being done there. We saw what at least purported to be lab tests being run. We saw literally reams of test results. Now, after the fact, what was put in at the trial were that a lot of those test results were overstated or misrepresented. But we saw a lot of test results that were entirely consistent with what the medical professionals were saying. So you kind of fell victim, too, to her ruse. Is that fair to say? Because you also were duped in a sense, right? Well, I don't know about duped. I don't know about victim. I mean, a lawyer represents a client. If a lawyer makes a mistake, it's the lawyer's problem. I don't think lawyers necessarily ought to always assume that their clients are being completely accurate and forthcoming. Individuals, particularly individuals in stress, rarely are. So I don't want to put too much on my being duped. I think I had a reasonable basis for the positions we took. I think that is consistent with what a wide, wide variety of people were saying at the time. It would be unrealistic to think that a lawyer, before he takes on a client, is going to be able to figure out everything that the client has done that is undesirable. I don't think that's the real world. So let's turn to the other big topic, Harvey Weinstein. You've been fairly circumspect in speaking about him, but a lot has happened since, say, your 2018 interview with Jim Stewart of the New York Times. 
Harvey Weinstein is now a convicted rapist in more than one jurisdiction. Now, I don't like to be too judgy, but is it fair to say that Harvey Weinstein is kind of a bad person? <laughs> uh, I think you can say whatever you want about it, Harvey Weinstein. What would you say about Harvey Weinstein? First of all, um, not saying anything critical about Harvey Weinstein I had nothing to do with my loyalty or lack of loyalty to him. And I think you are aware there is an absolute requirement under New York bar rules that a lawyer not criticize a former client, except in very limited circumstances, like, for example, you're in a fee dispute or you're someone to testify. But there are very strict bar rules that limit what lawyers can say about clients or former clients. And it's not merely that you can't violate attorney-client privilege. It is you affirmatively cannot say things negative about clients. So my reticence to criticize them is not a question of loyalty. It's a question of what my professional obligation is. No, that's fair. I will say you're stricter about this than other lawyers. There have been other lawyers who've dealt with Weinstein who've made, shall we say, noisier withdrawals. I don't know of anybody who made a noisy withdrawal. What I know is a lot of people who were very anxious to work for, with, or represent Weinstein during the time that he was winning all those Academy Awards and was highly popular, who have been critical in afterwards. But I'm not aware, maybe you are, I'm not aware of any lawyer who at the time made a noisy withdrawal. What about Lisa Bloom? Was she the one who had advised Weinstein and then later said some negative things? Yes, yes. She advised Weinstein in a lot of ways and was actually representing him in connection with the dealing with the women and afterwards was quite critical. But she did not make a noisy withdrawal okay. until after it all over. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess what everyone zeroes in on with Weinstein is Black Cube. And you're having signed that retainer agreement with this investigative agency that employed some aggressive and allegedly unethical tactics. And yeah, you said there, that you should have... There you go with that allegedly I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be careful. And you've said that you should not have retained an agency that you didn't retain adequate control or oversight of. But do you have any other thoughts that have occurred in the intervening years on Black Cube or, or just the Weinstein representation more generally? Have the years given you added perspective on on what happened and what if anything, went wrong here? It depends what you mean, something went wrong. A lot of things went wrong with what happened. But if you're talking about the representation, I think that, as I've said, in terms of Black Cube, that was a organization that my firm negotiated contract with, but was not responsible for supervising because they were reporting to somebody else. That probably is not a desirable way to do it. If you're going to be involved at all with an investigatory agency, you ought to have the responsibility for supervising their conduct. But in terms of hiring an investigator agency, that is something that is common, ordinary practice, and is probably malpractice if you don't. And one of the things that the New York Times was very unhappy about was that we hired an investigative agency to look into what one of their sources was doing. As one of their lawyers admitted in a book that he wrote, the New York Times hires investigative agencies 
to investigate the people that sue it for libel. Now, Blackcube also investigated some reporters, I thought, as well, no? There was not anything in what I dealt with them in terms of investigating reporters. There have been those allegations, and I don't know how much of that is accurate, how much of that is not accurate. But the contract that was involved was to investigate the um, allegations that were being made against Weinstein. And as I say, everybody who I know who's faced with a serious claim like that, including all the media that I know of, hire investigators to find mm-hmm. out the facts and try to find facts that are inconsistent with the claims. So I don't think there's anything in retrospect that caused me to think that wasn't the right thing to do. So other than inadequate supervision of Black Cube, you don't really have many regrets about the Weinstein representation or anything you did in the course of that? I don't have any regrets about anything I did in the course of that. I think any time those kind of events happen, you've obviously got regret about what happened. You also always necessarily look back and think about, is there something that you contributed to it? But if you're going to be a lawyer and represent clients, you're going to represent some clients that do things that are bad. And if you start judging your clients in terms of how you represent them, as I said before, you better find another profession. Uh, you can withdraw. And when I understood certain things, I withdrew. Mm-hmm. But while you're representing the client, you don't have an option of saying, well, I'm only going to represent this client halfway because I'm not so sure that he's really a good guy or really a good woman. I think the prospect of lawyers stop being an adversary for their client and starting being a judge of their client is something that undermines things that are fundamental to the way our legal system works. And to some extent, if you defend a client successfully, defend a rapist or a murderer, and you get them off, and then they go off, and instead of being in jail, they rape or murder again. I think that that is something that, on the one hand, lawyer could say, well, I'm responsible for that. On the other hand, I think that if that's going to stop the lawyer from dividing the representation that they're obligated to provide, that begins to undermine the protections that we have for the innocent. We don't protect guilty because we want to protect guilty people. Sure. We protect guilty people because that's the only way we know yep. to protect innocent people. At a certain point, there's this interesting conflict or tension between the interests of the lawyer and the client because the lawyer may have a reputational interest in not being sullied by something negative. And in your case, you had decades and decades of laudatory press and then you did get a lot of criticism over the Weinstein and Holmes stuff. And some people who kind of were ready to saint you or knight you or whatever now think differently about you personally. Does that bother you at a personal level? If you ever begin as a lawyer, start worrying more about how you look than how your clients look, you really ought to find another profession. Part of being a lawyer is that you are representing your client. And sometimes the representation of that client, people will like, and sometimes they won't like. If you can't ignore that, which is just comes from the territory, you really ought to become a gardener. Do something that everybody likes. I think that 
lawyers can be legitimately criticized for what they do, how they represent a client. I think that when lawyers cease being lawyers and become public advocates for their clients, as I have done from time to time, I think then that is outside the realm of the adversarial process. For example, some of the people who represented Jeffrey Epstein, when they, outside of the cases, outside of the court, went on uh, PR attacks against Epstein's victims, that's something that I think was not, in any sense, justifiable. If you're representing a client and you start tempering what you're doing, not because it's improper and there hasn't been any case or any bar finding that anything I did was improper as a lawyer. But if you start saying this is appropriate to do within the bounds of advocacy, but I'm not going to do it because it's going to make me look bad, even though my client needs it. That is a betrayal, in my view, of the obligation that a lawyer takes on when he represents a client. Now let's turn to Boyce Schiller Flexner, which I think is another important part of your legacy. The firm is approaching 30 years, and after a rough patch, it seems to be doing better than ever. There were a lot of partners who left in 2020, more than 50, and some of them told the media that it had to do with Weinstein or Theranos or what have you, but some of them also raised this issue pertaining to your and your partner Jonathan Schiller's kids at the firm and whether they were getting some kind of better treatment or something like that. So some law firms have these anti-nepotism policies. Did you ever think of that at Boys Schiller? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I'm not aware of lawyers who said at the time, that they were leaving either because of the way anybody's children were treated at the law firm or with respect to Weinstein or Theranos. There might have been one or two lawyers in California, but certainly nobody was involved in the management of the firm. So, I mean, I don't know exactly what you're talking about in, in that respect, focusing on the premises. With respect to that question, I think the firm has been strengthened by the lawyers at the firm, whether they have had any relationship to the founding partners or not. Josh Schiller, who is Jonathan's son, he's one of the leading copyright and intellectual property lawyers in the country. He successfully argued the Prince case in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which has been a landmark in copyright law when he was, I'm not even sure he was a partner at the time, his most recent case is representing, obviously, as you know, the Carlin estate against the people who have appropriated Carlin's name, image, and likeness using artificial intelligence. And he's had a wide variety of other cases, but he's one of the leading intellectual property lawyers in the country, particularly with respect to intellectual property litigation. So I think the firm has been strengthened there. There is a wide recognition within the firm that the firm has treated everybody fairly. Now, one of the things that's helped is our compensation system is heavily objective. And our partnership promotion system is heavily objective. We have a partnership council, a committee that neither Jonathan nor I have ever served on. 
that recommends people for partners. Before that happened, we participated in the process. But since that has been developed, we've not participated in the nomination of people for partnership. And I think that if you talk to the people at the firm, you will not find that as a matter of concern. Just to be clear about where I was coming from, and I, I wasn't trying to make anything up, I pulled up an old CNBC article that has the headline, Boys Schiller Loses Several Attorneys Over Issues Involving Harvey Weinstein, Elizabeth Holmes, Founders Kids. But I will say, in your defense, the lawyers who spoke to CNBC were anonymous. We have no idea who they were, so nobody went on the record to say these things. But I, I just want to be clear, I wasn't trying to make anything up out of whole cloth. Or No, I wasn't suggesting you were. And as I said, we don't know. So the firm, I would say, since the challenging times I alluded to, has had this remarkable recovery. 2023 will probably go down as one of your best years in terms of both wins for clients and financially for the firm. Could the firm have turned itself around without all of the work you've done over the past years? Because some of the folks who left would say, oh, David and Jonathan need to kind of hand the reins over and make way for the next generation. But isn't it fair to say that you and Jonathan have been instrumental in the firm's turnaround? I think we've helped. I don't know if instrumental is maybe too strong a word. Most of the cases, most of the big cases that are being done are not cases that Jonathan has brought in or that I've brought in. We continue to be quite active and in 2020, we're fortunate enough to be quite successful. But if you look at where the business is coming from now, it's coming from a wide variety of partners. Matt Schwartz, Stuart Singer, Sigrid McCauley, Josh Schiller, Amy Schoen, Phil Korologos, Steve Zach, and many more. You've seen some of our young people, really young people, begin to generate business in their 30s. It's a case that we just settled for Google. Major, major privacy cases. Mark Mayo, Beckel Richardson. James Lee were the people that drove that case. If you look at the cases that were developed that are really, as you're talking about in terms of the resurgence of our San Francisco office, Max Pritt is young. I mean, everybody looks young to me at this point, but he actually is young. You know, is handling major work for companies out there. You have Mark Ayala up in our AMAC office, who is doing major work including in bankruptcy reorganizations. You have just a whole host of people who are responsible not just for doing the work, but for bringing in the work and are developing the reputations. Now, those are not names as well known as Jonathan Schiller or David Boyce, because most of those people are about half our age or less. <laughs> but some of those are going to be just as well known 30, 40 years from now as we are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's important to put on the record. A lot of people overestimate the amount of business that you and Jonathan are still responsible for. Would you be willing to say a number? It could be rough. I'm not going to hold you. It actually could be wrong, too. I've got more in mind the slope of the line than I do the actual percentage, okay. but it certainly would be no more than 15% at this point. Interesting. So I have one last question before we turn to my speed round. And I don't mean to be kind of depressing or anything. Whenever I see you, you seem to be in great shape, but you are almost 83. And with all due respect, I'm guessing the New York Times probably has one of those rewritten obituaries <laughs> for you. So imagine the obituary of David Boyce. What do you think would 
be in it. It's hard to say. It probably will depend in part on when I die, because there is a tendency to focus on whatever has happened in the last five years or so, five or 10 years. But I think it will be a mosaic. It will be a series of cases. It will involve my family, because that's obviously been an important part of my life. It will involve a little bit my writing, but it'll be mostly about my cases and the role I've played in the practice of law and in the justice system over 50 to 75 years. I tried the IBM case, first case as lead counsel in the CalComp against IBM case in 1976. I did Westmoreland CBS libel trial, which was described at the time as the libel trial of the century in 1984 and 1985. Bush v. Gore and Microsoft cases were in the 1990s and early 2000s. In, in 29, 10, 11, 12, 13, we had the marriage equality litigation. We had Jeffrey Epstein litigation starting in 2015 and continuing. Today, in between, we had all of these multi-billion dollar commercial cases for American Express, SVs and MasterGuard, uh, Volkswagen, diesel fraud, the Takata exploding airbags, the Blue Cross Blue Shield antitrust litigation, now the Google litigation. And I think it will be a mosaic. People will be asking me the same questions you did about unpopular clients that I represented, whether it was Westinghouse at the time or Theranos later. But I think it'll be a mosaic. So let's now turn to my final four questions, which consist of this little speed round I ask to all my guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system of governance. The thing that I like least about it is the thing that I like best, which is the adversarial process. The adversarial process is the single best engine that society has created to protect the rights of individuals and to pursue those rights. At the same time, the adversarial process obviously depends on each side having effective advocate. And our justice system works extremely well when both sides have very highly qualified and highly resourced advocates. The case of Microsoft and the Justice Department is a great example of that. You had two parties, each of which could do what needed to be done to present the case the best. Our adversarial system works pretty well also when neither side has much resources. It's not quite as effective, but it's actually very, very fair and generally reaches the right result. The time that their adversary system breaks down is when one side has a much better advocate or much more resources than the other side. And that is happening more and more. Over the course of my career, you have seen the justice system degrade in an increasingly large number of cases because of the substantial disparity of 
resources and abilities on one side or the other. And that has been aggravated by all of the additional ways that people have now to investigate, present their cases. We're talking about private investigators, private investigators, and it was one thing, but all sorts of experts, all sorts of document review systems. There are many more tools of the trade today than there were when I started, and many of those tools are very expensive. Mm-hmm. So that simply aggravates the disparity of resources that we've always had to some extent. It has become worse, and our justice system is dependent on the adversarial system. The adversarial system is dependent on some rough equality of presentation, and that's breaking down. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I'd be an American history teacher, probably, like my father was. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Oh, I get a lot of sleep. Oh, really? At least eight hours sleep a night. If I'm not in trial, maybe a little more. Okay. When I'm in trial, pretty regularly, I will go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, no matter how much work remains to be done. And I'll get up at six in the morning. So I will always get my eight hours sleep. Wow, that's great. No, I just feel better. I perform better if I'm well-rested. Absolutely. And then my last question is, what words of wisdom might you have, either career advice or life advice for my listeners? I'm not sure I'm good at giving general life advice. I have enough trouble with that with my children, grandchildren. (laughs) Uh, Professional advice? As professional advice, I'd say, which is kind of, life advice is that lawyers tend to be either lawyers who really like the law or really don't like the law. And there are a lot of people in the profession who really don't like the practice of law. And there are a lot of people in the profession that really do. And so the people who don't like the practice of law, my advice would be do something else. There are a lot of other opportunities out there to do things. And I meet a lot of people who are practicing law who are just waiting to retire. And the law is too great a profession to have people spending time in it that don't really enjoy it. And to the people who do enjoy practicing law, I would say, remember why you went to law school. Very few people go to law school because they think that's the easiest way to make a lot of money. You go to law school in part because it's a well-paid profession. You go to law school in part because it's a profession that is challenging, intellectually stimulating, but you go to law school almost always in significant part because you're interested in justice, you're interested in the justice system, you're interested in making a difference in people's lives. And one of the great things about our profession is that you have an opportunity to do something that is challenging, interesting, and occasionally exciting, and you have an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives and sometimes make a difference in a country. And I think that people can lose sight of why they went to law school. You get out of law school, and particularly if you become an associate in a big firm, you've got an enormous number of demands. Often you start a family, 
and that has a lot of additional demands. And you end up worrying about your kid's school and the house mortgage and your next promotion. And the, the justice system and why you went to law school tends to recede. For those who do like being a lawyer, you'll like it a lot more if you keep remembering why you went to law school and you do things that reflect that. We have tremendous needs in the justice system for people who are prepared to represent people pro bono, take on cases, take on causes occasionally. And I think that that will lead to a much more rewarding practice. Now, we're all going to make a reasonable amount of money. It has been a mystery to me why our society pays people so much money to do something that is so interesting as they do in the legal profession. So we're privileged to do what we do and we ought to enjoy it. And I feel very privileged to have spoken with you. So thank you so much again for your time at Insight, David. As you can tell, I enjoy talking about these things. I'm a frustrated teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much to David for joining me and for fielding some tough questions with grace and good cheer. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, please email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, February 21. Until then... May your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.